0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
1: Welcome to Episode 129 with my guest psychologist, David Hirohama. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour An hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, check it out. You can support the show financially. You can take surveys. You can see how other people uh, filled out their surveys. You can join the forum um and you can read blogs by uh by me and by um many many guests i haven't written a blog in a long time so i don't know why i said that
0: because i'm a liar
1: big fat fucking liar uh-oh one minute in and we are shaming ourselves is that a new record probably not um what did i want to share with you we're gonna we're gonna get into the end of the show pretty quickly um Wanted to mention, um, PodFest is coming up, um, so if you're going to come to L.A. for it, that's Sunday, October 6th, and I'll be doing a show, a live show, from noon to 2 p.m., and all the information about PodFest is um, at LAPodFest.com, and there's all kinds of good podcasts there, so go to the website and check it out. Um, it's going to be a really fun weekend. I am have had a really good week, um, had a good therapy session on Monday, and my therapist suggested a couple of tips for communicating um, better with my wife, and um, she said, you might want to you know, find a, a, a way to express your feelings um, that uh, help her understand what you want to say. And I could have sworn, that's what she said, but I could have sworn, she said, play eight hours of Plants vs. Zombies on your iPad until your shoulder hurts. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. who is a licensed clinical psychologist here in the state of California, who has uh, experience working with um, child molesters and rapists. You you worked at Colinga State Hospital for a couple of years?
0: Yes, I worked there for a year and a half as a contract psychologist, meaning I wasn't an actual state employee, I was hired on a contract basis. And uh, I managed to survive there yeah. for a year and a half before my contract ended.
1: And why do you use the word survive?
0: Uh, survived meaning um, it, it was a very uh, uh, stressful experience. Uh, a lot of things happened when I was there. I saw a lot of things happen. Um, so uh, I count myself as a survivor.
1: Well, I I put... Uh, a tweet out about 15 minutes ago saying that I was going to um, be interviewing a psychologist who has worked with rapists and child molesters and asking, um, well, let me ask a, a couple of questions before, before we get to that. Um, what made you want to become a psychologist?
0: Uh, I think it started when I was probably around five or six years old. Uh, I was actually born in Japan. Uh, my father was in the U.S. Army, and he, my, my mom, who was living in Japan as, a, as an exchange student. And so I spent my first two years in Japan, me and my older sister, and uh, then came to California. And uh, from the very beginning, I was a very rebellious person. Um, uh, my relationship with my mother was, was very contentious from the start. Uh, and I'm actually the first, I'm, I'm the only person that I know who actually ditched the first day of kindergarten <laughs> because, uh, my mom dropped me off. I looked in the classroom. I just did not like what I saw. So I left. I walked down the street to the corner store. Uh, I bought some candy. I sat down on the curb and I was completely enjoying myself till the store owner came out and said, shouldn't you be in school? And I said, I don't want to go to school. I'm fine right here. Uh, So he called the school. They called my mom. She came down and got me. Uh, But that mindset of going against the grain, Mm -hmm. uh, to make a long story short, is basically why I became a psychologist. Uh, Because there's not many – there's many, many more female psychologists. Uh, There's a lot fewer male psychologists uh, for a lot of different reasons in my my graduate school uh, years. I was always, you know, uh, one of the one or two guys in the class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, being a psychologist goes, for me anyway, goes very much against the grain, uh, which is sort of what I would like to do. Did
1: you come from a household where there was emotional openness?
0: None. None? Actually, none. Uh, uh, I'm a third generation Japanese American and uh i cannot generalize too much you know because uh um i know basically my own family situation uh but uh emotional openness is not uh a trait that you find very often in uh in asian families uh, They're so right behind the english okay <laughs> yeah all right um so uh, no emotional openness was was not uh happening In my family, Uh, so and that's probably another reason that I became a psychologist because I can sort of uh, vicariously uh, 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 work on my problems, but not directly address them. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, the the part of your work that fascinates me the most is the stuff about working with the, the the child molesters and the and the rapists because so often on this well, for one, I just find them fascinating. I've always been fascinated by the dark side of people, serial killers, you know, all that stuff. What, Because I think everybody has a shadow side and a darkness inside them, and not necessarily to that extent, but what is it that they go from just thinking that thought to being compelled to act on it? Because I think we all think dark thoughts, and some of them, they're just fleeting like a thought that is like, oh, that was gross, why the fuck did that pop in my brain, to this continuum of, oh, I'd like to do that, to, oh, I'm going to plan to do that, of, oh, I can't stop doing this. Um, how did you come come to get hired at Kohlenga to be a forensic uh, psychologist?
0: Uh, I was, uh, somebody had called me, you know, offering a contract position, And uh, me being uh, very, very curious about the human mind and about psychology and behavior, uh, you know, a lot of people would have maybe hung up the phone, you know, when when somebody said, you know, we have a position up in in Central California working with child molesters and rapists. uh, Most people probably would have uh, said, no way, I can't do that. Me? I said, "Uh, bring it on. (laughs) Let's (laughs) do it. Go ahead uh I said bring it on let's do it because uh uh number one I, I had never done it before um you know I was just um uh I had worked with some parolees you know who 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 had um you know uh done you know sexual crimes uh but I had never actually worked in a place that was uh, full of uh child molesters and rapists uh so the offer came and uh, I thought for about five seconds, and then I accepted. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the hospital itself is is in uh, Central California. It's actually halfway between L.A. and San Francisco. It's about three hundred miles from, from north of L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere, um, in in Coalinga. There's nothing around it. There's a small the town of Coalinga is very small, um, and the facility is huge and uh the first thought that i had when i walked into the facility uh was where is the facility for the victims mm. because this facility is cost i think uh, half a billion dollars you know um 3 or 400 to build and then uh, a lot of money to to maintain and to staff uh so it's it's a very expensive facility and uh they have you know daily activities uh you know of all kinds you know you have sports activities you have uh group group therapy sessions you have uh art activities you have music activities you have um uh learning activities you know where you can study things so um uh the the individuals there have a um uh in a way you know on the outside at least they have it pretty good because, uh, you know, they're in a facility where they get fed three meals a day. Um, It's, you know, well-maintained, a lot of activities to to partake in. Uh, So uh, on the surface, at least, you know, they they have it pretty good.
1: What percentage of the hospital, is the entire hospital a lockdown facility? Yes, it is. And what percentage of the facility is for each type of Thing Like, is there a certain type where people, um, they've, you know, murdered somebody and they're completely delusional and they're a danger to society, but they've never committed a sex
0: crime? Uh, actually, uh, this, uh, facility Koalinga, is, it's not a prison. Uh, the facility was actually created, uh, out of a, uh, sexual predator law, uh, which basically, um, It was a place to start housing uh, sex offenders who had completed their sentence, but uh, they were not ready to be released onto the streets. So so they made this law where uh, the individuals can be uh, uh, diagnosed with a uh, a mental disorder and uh, be kept in the facility based on that mental disorder uh until they they are um uh well enough to to be released uh and uh in the eyes of many people fortunately uh not many people get out
1: i was gonna say so people are not allowed to to come and go as they please, but people aren't there to serve a
0: sentence it, It's not a sentence it's uh in order to be released, they have to have a judge. In their um, uh, uh, county of um, where the crime was committed, uh, they have to have a judge sign off uh, on their paperwork to to let them out. And if you can imagine, uh, I don't think there's many judges out there who are willing to have that on their resume that they, uh, you know, that they started to to sign somebody off to go home. Yeah. Uh, so so this kind of uh, it's a, it's a political thing. Uh, it's also um, uh, a legal uh kind of uh complicated set of circumstances uh that uh causes a lot of uh anger among the individuals uh a lot of resentment and a lot of uh, violence i would say uh because they're they're basically uh they're they're being they're going to be kept there
1: and they're their are 100% of them there involuntarily
0: uh it's completely involuntary they they've been uh they've been uh commanded they've been directed they've been uh to to stay in the facility so nobody
1: goes i should go to koalinga because i'm a danger to society no
0: no no uh so the um so there's a lot of anger there and, and a lot of violence based on you know uh their view that you know uh there's actually it, It's a funny kind of joke that's made about the prison system and this hospital that that there are no guilty people. Everybody there has not done anything wrong. They're all innocent, you know, according to them. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: Well, I would imagine to be somebody that is a serial molester or rapist to live with yourself, you'd have to become an expert at justifying your actions, you know, to not be lying awake every night going...
0: Well, uh that would kind of bring us into the the personality uh, aspects of of these uh individuals. And actually uh uh the the individuals went to court to be called individuals. Uh, they we cannot call them patients. Mm. You know, uh, uh or we cannot call them prisoners. Uh they have to be called individuals. Interesting. Yeah.
1: So you arrive there. And what's your first set of experiences?
0: Well, uh, I went through a few days of training uh, before they actually let me into the facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during my training, you know, the trainers would uh, tell you a lot of horror stories.
1: How to you know? dodge semen?
0: Yeah, um, you know. Oh, you don't want it. I hope they don't send you to this unit or that unit. Um, you know, because that unit is is really bad. You know, so so they feed you a lot of stuff, uh, so uh, you really start to shake a little bit before you actually go into the facility. So I went to the facility, and um, like I mentioned, the facility is huge. It's sort of like uh, the first kind of image that came to my mind was the Mall of America, you know, because <laughs> it, it looks like a big mall. Wow. You know, it's a, it's a big open space, huge, you know, ceiling and um so orange julius uh, no no orange julius uh, but uh this is you know you know i've been i've been a meditator and i've been a, a buddhist for many many years almost 30 years so um this is the moment that that really where i had to put all my learning all my all the things that i had learned from studying buddhism and doing meditation into practice because uh, it was just too overwhelming
1: can you be specific about what it was that you did?
0: Well, uh walking through crowds of, of guys, you know, um uh very scary guys, some of them very big, very, very uh threatening uh looking, uh guys who were uh you know catcalling, guys who were uh, making comments, you know, there goes fresh meat, uh that kind of thing. Uh
1: they should do extra time for being cliche,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so walking the gauntlet mm, every day uh, or many times a day mm-hmm. was definitely a challenge where I had to really work through uh, my fears and my anxiety, and uh, you know my, my questioning of what I'm doing, what what I was doing there, and um, you know, should I bail? Should I quit? You know. Uh, was I up to it? Was I good enough? You know, was I tough enough? All these questions go through your mind. as, you know, for I guess for all new employees, you know, when when they walk into the facility,
1: were, were you more concerned about your physical safety or your emotional well-being, or both?
0: Uh, uh definitely physical safety and uh, emotional well-being as well. You know, because you, you have to, you cannot look scared. That that is will be the end of you if, if you look scared and you act scared. Uh, because they'll eat you up. You know, these guys are, are antisocial, you know, for the most part. Uh, very perceptive, you know, in regards to um, uh, people's uh, state of mind. So you, you can't walk around looking scared. You have to look like, you have to walk straight. You know, you have to have your, your chest up and your eyes up. You can't look down. Yeah, um you and you have to carry yourself with some with some authority you know with some presence otherwise like i said you, you know they'll chew you up and spit you out
1: and were people routinely uh, uh, attacked there or um was it a rare thing
0: um a lot of fights between individuals and uh staff also uh, get assaulted at times uh, the the actual uh, housing is is uh, because it's a hospital it's a mental hospital is is different from a prison uh, because since it's a hospital there's a lot of mobility allowed
1: even at night when they're sleeping
0: uh they they lock the doors at a certain hour uh, but during the day it's basically um, you know the individuals can can walk around and you know go and uh, go to their classes or uh, hang out you know in in the hallways and and things like that, but uh they basically bunk up in in dormitory style uh living arrangements how many to a room uh maybe two, three four people to a room okay
1: so you get in there, you're aware of your physical safety you're and and what what would you be telling yourself what were the Buddhist practices to deal with having that body fear?
0: The, the, the idea, uh, the, the notion of suffering, is a big deal in, in the Buddhist uh, um, philosophy. Uh, all beings are suffering, uh, one way or another, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. Um, and these individuals, as well as the staff, uh, go through their own uh, experiences of suffering. It's it's different for the individuals, you know. They're 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 suffering uh, because of uh, their inability to uh, control their behavior. Uh, they're also suffering because uh, the majority of them have been abused, and uh, staff also suffers because of uh, the the environment that they're being exposed to, the danger that they're being exposed to, the the uh, temptation. That they're exposed to, because uh, uh, staff uh, every now and then somebody will get walked off, and walked off means walked out of the facility, meaning fired, um, because they uh, formed relationships with the individuals, and some of them have been fired for bringing contraband into the facility. Uh, uh, clinicians, you know, people who you wouldn't think uh, would uh, fall. To the to the temptation of uh, bringing contraband in for either for money or for um, you know to maintain a relationship with an individual or uh, because they were threatened, you know they were they were trapped into bringing stuff in. So uh, a lot of suffering. This is a this is a barbed wire fences and and uh, thick walls to try to contain suffering. Um, uh, because letting that suffering out uh would mean uh would be a very uh dangerous situation
1: create more suffering absolutely so give me a feel for um some of the people that you came across are you free to talk about any individuals anonymously
0: uh it, it's actually a little like uh the general public, in the sense that there there's all kinds of levels of, of uh, offender. You you have your completely antisocial offender, who uh, has no empathy whatsoever. Has you, no. And,
1: and is that would that be considered a sociopath or a psychopath? Yes. What's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath,
0: other uh, than the car they drive? <laughs> um uh, psychopath is uh psychopathic traits are, are um uh lack of empathy you know uh lack of ability to to uh feel bad uh about hurting someone but it's to the level where where it's it's a psychotic level of of disorder uh where uh the the level of uh, of cruelty is is probably a lot higher than than a sociopath. Uh, A a sociopath might or might not uh, uh, commit crimes, but a psychopath would would probably most definitely commit a crime.
1: Is it fair to say that a sociopath may have empathy, empathy for some, maybe people around them, but treat others as if they're not people?
0: I think that's a that's a fair definition. Okay.
1: Cuz I think I remember reading that uh, somewhere. Might have been a mad magazine, but I remember reading it somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. I I think psychopath is an actual disorder whereas uh, uh I don't think somebody can be have have a diagnosis of being a sociopath. I got you.
1: Um so give me a a, a sense of you, the first group you said was um people that are, that are psychopaths. Um do you want to talk more about them or talk about another group?
0: Uh, there, there's uh, uh, levels. There, there's people who, at least on the surface, um, because sometimes it's hard to tell who's being uh, authentic and honest with you, uh, who actually have thought about what they've done. Uh, they feel remorseful for what they've done. Uh, they want to learn more about why they've done the things that they've done. Um, they're more willing to participate in, in in group therapy they're more willing to talk to staff clinicians individually uh so that's another level uh unfortunately uh percentage wise there's not as many of those guys individuals as as the antisocial um offenders uh so so the
1: antisocial t- seems to make up the bulk of
0: uh i would say so okay mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a funny kind of distinction between the child molesters and the rapists. Uh, uh, for whatever reason, the, the rapists seem to have more status than than the child molesters. And, and I think this is true in prison as well.
1: Everybody's got to have somebody to look down on. Right,
0: right. So uh, it's, a, it's a status thing in, in the facility and in the prisons as well. Rapists get a little bit more respect than <laughs> child molesters. Child molesters... Uh, if you're a child molester in prison, um that's like a death sentence because somebody somebody will get you eventually. Yeah, you know, uh child molesters are not looked upon with a lot of uh respect in prison.
1: Yeah, in prison, um many of them um need the uh I forget what it, what it's called, but the the kind of protective housing special needs. Yes. Um which like gang members that, you know, Turn evidence against their gangs and mm-hmm. child molesters tend to which i know the the ex-gang members hate that they that they wind up being housed with uh, with the child molesters mm-hmm. um, i think one of the common misperceptions about people that have been sexually abused or molested is that is that they go on to molest and abuse i've read so many emails and surveys from people who were molested who are afraid to share it with loved ones or people in their neighborhood because they're afraid that those people are going to think that this person is a child molester.
0: Almost everybody in the facility, you know, has claimed has claimed to have been molested.
1: But, but what do you think the truth is? Have you ever come across somebody where it, it was revealed that this person, nothing had happened to them?
0: I, I think it's, it's pretty common. Uh, but i 'm not sure if it 's as, as common as is ninety or ninety five percent i 'd say it 's pretty high though and and uh kind of the shocking common
1: thing, that somebody was abused
0: right yeah, yeah. Okay. And and the, the kind of uh, during my training you know i would the first thing that they have you do is read through their histories um, so and I would sit in my office with a big window. You know, with where people could look in, and you know, I would start reading their histories, and you know, my jaw would be hanging open, you know, because of the things that they've done to people, uh, to kids, um, and and uh, rape victims. So I had to sort of stop doing that, you know, because it it, it was it's devastating reading through, you know, the. Uh, history of these guys who have done very very terrible things so i sort of turned around and and didn't face the window so that i could you know absorb and not look like i was um you know freaking out right exactly
1: were you able to have empathy for anyone whose actions horrified you but who you found that person to have some part of to have a some humanity in them that you could connect to
0: I always tried to uh, approach individuals and talk to them on, on the level of uh, non of a non judgmental uh, frame of mind, because uh, they these individuals being, you know, very very sensitive and very perceptive of people's reactions to them. Uh, if you want any hope of you know being able to talk to them or to get through to them on some level, then you have to approach them as another human being.
1: Because I would imagine they would be searching you for signs of disgust, signs of judgment, um, if they're going to open themselves up to you at all. Um, uh, Because I would imagine people that are in there for that, (laughs) this sounds like a ridiculous understatement, but have trust issues. Um, So, would you be faking that connection to them to get them to open up or was it a genuine thing or was it sometimes one sometimes the other
0: uh, I couldn't fake it that's, that's not me uh, uh, the way I approach psychology in general uh, not only these individuals but but clients as well it is uh, from a very uh, uh, as authentic uh, uh, frame of mind as possible so, uh, number one, the, the individuals, they, they would spot you out, you know, if you try to fake it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, no, I, I tried to be uh, uh, very, very honest, you know, in my, pre- in, my, uh, in my presence with them.
1: You know, one of the things that I've uh, read about child molesters is that they, to be able to do what they do, many of them are really good at reading people because then they can say what they they have to portray themselves as something other than what they are to get what they want to get to earn people's trust was that something that was the result of a coping mechanism when they were children or is that something that they consciously learned as an adult once their you know issue their their monster needed feeding or is it hard to say.
0: Antisocial people are are master manipulators. And uh it's probably, you know, partly due to their upbringing, you know, whatever their their uh unpleasant upbringing was where they had to uh find a, a different means of getting what they needed or wanted. And uh that was a starting point and and basically uh grew bigger and bigger until uh Getting what they wanted and needed became uh, their pathology. Um, so, uh, definitely, they they're they master manipulators.
1: Do you think that's ever the payoff for them? The that the, the the sex, the sexual act, or the rage underneath it is incidental to the victory of fooling, trapping being smarter than
0: I think you're you're pretty spot-on with that Uh, you know they pretty commonly say about sex crimes that it's not about sex it's more about power and control and and for the the antisocial individual uh, power and control is is what it's all about
1: do you find that individuals need bigger and bigger payoffs Um, You know, the the, the thing that I relate to about rapists and child molesters is, as an addict, I know that I compromised my integrity many times to fill the emptiness inside me. And I can empathize with somebody else who has that feeling inside of them, but is cursed with a need that is so much more antisocial than mine was and after i got sober i noticed that it wasn't really about the drugs or the alcohol sometimes it was sometimes i would get high from um getting away with something from um you know almost getting caught with drugs on me or um you know, almost getting pulled over by a cop or, or or something like that. And I think that's one aspect of people's antisocial behavior that doesn't really get touched on a lot is the victory of I'm smarter than, than you are. I've gotten away with something. I'm manipulated. The manipulation, the high of manipulating people, I think is an addiction that is rampant in our society and, you know, can express itself in, in codependency. You know, I'll, I'll live with you and your drug addiction, um, or your, you know, shoplifting addiction. Um, but now I've got a power over you. So I, I'm not doing it really because I, I love you. I'm doing it because it gives me some strings to pull. Um, is that, is that a fair assessment?
0: I would say so. And, and, And it sounds like what you're describing to me about your experience. It's really, it, it's. The process itself, you know, the steps that that you take in order to, to uh, get high, is uh, it's probably equally as important.
1: Yeah, I would be high, like have endorphins or some positive chemical going through my body on the way home with the ounce of weed on me. Th- knowing I was breaking the law, but also knowing I'm going to be taken care of for the next couple of weeks because I have my... My drug of choice, my temporary god, whatever, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to be able to escape. I've got my key to open that door to get out of to get out of this body. I don't want to be living in.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you know, pedophilia is, is an addiction, and uh, and as you were describing that to me, uh, it, it's really the same for for uh, uh, pedophiliacs you know it's really the 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 process the steps that they take um you know they uh they groom their victims and and that that grooming aspect where they get to know the child and you know they uh they ingratiate themselves with the child and uh do things for them take them places you know kind of kind of basically to to set them up for you know victimization uh uh uh, people who are, have pedophilia and child molesters, uh, definitely that's part of the high, that's part of the addiction is that, that, uh, that process.
1: That presenting yourself as something other than, than you are, the fooling. Yes. Um, not for the sake of sensationalism, for, but for the sake of understanding the humanity underneath the sickness. Talk specifically about the typical child molester or the typical rapist what 's going on inside them what What are they thinking and feeling? what was their childhood like what do they hope to get better um, and I know there's a variety there 's a continuum of the experiences, but you got a chance to sit with these people in group therapy every day. Talk about some of the dynamics
0: well uh, before I get into that i'd like to say uh, talk about a little about the connection between Uh, sex crimes, child molesters, and substance abuse, Uh, because uh, probably the the percentage who uh, I mentioned had been abused, the percentage of substance abusers is is way up there, too. Uh, And in uh, a lot of the cases, alcohol or drugs were a factor. They were a contributing factor because, you know, um, being addicts, they had compromised uh, uh, decision-making uh, capabilities. You know, they were, they were high when they committed their crimes. You know, they were they were high as, as very young children. Uh, and people.
1: isn't there also the, the the drugs that their own brain secretes when they're engaged in the act that is addictive?
0: Oh, definitely. It, it's kind of a, a runner's high for for sex criminals: adrenaline, yeah, endorphins. Mm-hmm. You know the, the outsider looking at the crimes they've committed, uh, without really any knowledge of uh, you know uh, these people as individuals, and not knowing the sp- specifics of their of their cases and their and their family histories, don't really realize that that neurology uh, plays a role, and this is not to to minimize, you know, the the um, the, the horrible um, crimes they've committed. You know, the hurt, suffering that they've caused to, to other people. Uh, but uh, some of these guys, they're they neurologically compromised. And neurologically compromised meaning uh, uh, in order to, to do these horrible things to, to people, uh, probably there's some process in the prefrontal cortex, which is a, the front part of your brain, which is the, the part of the brain that's responsible for empathy. And and connecting with people and, and having a sense of uh, of compassion, is uh, definitely there's there's less activity in in uh, that part of the brain for for uh, I would say for for criminals in general and, and for for child molesters and rapists.
1: Well, the two things that I've that I've seen um, articles on one showed pictures of uh, brains of children that had been abused they did scans of the brains and they there were damaged areas of of the brain where where it was compromised because of abuse and the other thing is they measured the thickness of the cortex of the the what do you you call it the prefrontal cortex yes Mm -hmm. and i guess the average thickness of the cortex was like I don't know, five, five millimeters and people that had been abused, that area was three to four millimeters. So the, the brain actually, the, the development of the brain was, was changed. Um, Talk talk about if you would, I want to try to get a sense of a person in group therapy, what they share about what they experience when the urge to do this comes over them, what they're thinking and feeling. Do they try to stop themselves? Do they, you know, what do they? Can you can you walk me through that? Or is that too hard to?
0: Well, uh, the the antisocial guys. Um, first of all, they they uh, it's very hard to get to them to come to group therapy um, because. They don't. They don't want to. They're not guilty. Mm -hmm. They haven't done anything that would require them to come to group therapy. Uh, So that eliminates a. a, um, That
1: scares the fuck out of me. You know that that there are people walking around like that because I I guess I like to think of that everybody has a little empathy. That that is just chilling. Go ahead. I didn't mean. No,
0: you're right. It's 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 a very very scary thing and uh in the minds of the people who who created the these facilities, you know that's what they're thinking is you know these 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 are people basically uh there's no cure for for a lot of these guys um uh, because it enough of of the brain functioning is gone and and there's been uh so much uh Maybe you know there's been so much damage to the brain that it's it's no longer a question of motivation you know uh, they they might have a, a a small you know uh inkling of, of desire to stop you know what they're doing what they've done, but uh the the brain and, and the brain chemistry just overwhelms and, any motivation to stop
1: and was that set? As children and adolescents, or was it added to that damage by acting out as adults?
0: Well, uh, a lot of the antisocial guys have uh, were diagnosed with conduct disorder. You know, uh, which uh, means that when you're a young person, you know, you start uh, being very destructive. You start hurting people at a very young age. You, you start uh, um, torturing animals. That's that's one uh, aspect, that's one sign that a person is, is uh heading towards being antisocial. Uh they they stop going to school, you know, because uh uh because of problems they create in, in in the school environment. So um that antisocial behavior uh doesn't just start at, you know, twenty-five years old or thirty years old or forty years old. Uh, there are pretty clear signs, you know, that of uh, something is wrong.
1: What are the earliest ages that signs
0: show? Uh, some as early as uh, five, six years old.
1: And at what a is there an age that you're kind of if it hasn't developed by that age, you're it's probably not going to happen.
0: Uh, probably you're you're talking about high school age, you know. Uh, once they get to that that age then uh, and they have these you know uh, levels of conduct disorder then uh, if they don't get some kind of treatment by that age or are very young then um, there's very little chance that
1: so if a kid starts showing that at five or six you know a parent catches them torturing an animal um, therapy some type of intervention can steer that child away from a life of psychopathic behavior
0: in in some yes it 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 can definitely help some okay. uh some the the therapy is is of no use because uh the the pathology is so uh, aggressive that it doesn't that therapy doesn't do any good
1: and have all of those children basically been abused that show that or are there some that are that are born that way they're born with that physiology and or is it hard to know
0: uh a lot of abuse and and less so that they were born, with with that level of of uh, with the gene.
1: Would you call that an incredibly small per- percentage or a small percentage?
0: Uh, uh, I would say, thankfully, a, a, a very small percentage. Okay.
1: Um. So, some kids, their paths can be altered with intervention and in- intense therapy and learning coping mechanisms. Is what 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 do you do with the kid that... And by the way, I'd, I'd also like to, to say and correct me if I'm wrong, that if a child is torturing an animal, that doesn't necessarily mean that child is going to grow up to be a sociopath.
0: No. Okay.
1: Because I don't want parents that have, you know, caught their kid pulling the bugs off of, you know, the wings off of bugs to go, oh my God, you know. He's going to shoot up a school.
0: No, um, but but it depends again on on the situation, on the actual situation, and and what what level of torture is is the kid engaging in. You know. Um,
1: as opposed to lashing out you know you're pissed and you kick your dog which because I've read surveys that people have submitted where they're like they were going through a really tough time and you know they jerked the the leash really hard on their dog or you know they maybe even kicked him out of anger and I don't want those people to think oh my god you know I'm a a psychopath
0: uh, I wouldn't worry Uh, I I would uh, that's an anger issue yeah yeah that that's not a uh, that's not a conduct disorder but if if uh if your kid is is uh, uh like uh, gradually uh cutting off the tail of the family cat mm-hmm. you know uh section by section uh then that that's something that you need to worry about mm-hmm. which which i've heard you know and do those do.
1: children uh generally become aroused by that or that that's not necessarily the case
0: sexually aroused yeah um I there's probably a, a level of sexual arousal in there with uh, that is generated by the the suffering that they're witnessing
1: mm-hmm um, so we got the one level the the psychopaths mm-hmm and then what what would the other level be the, the people that have some level of empathy
0: yes and, and uh, these are the guys that that are, will be that are willing to talk to you that have some uh uh capacity to reflect on the things that they've done um and and these are the guys that that are kind of a, a kind of a pleasant to work with you know because they will actually talk to you they they will talk to you about their own abuse, you know, things that were done to them. And uh, therapists, clinicians will try to help them connect those experiences of them being abused to the things that they've done to to uh, other people. Uh, so, So...
1: In the hopes that they will have some empathy for themselves and feel hope that they can change? Yes. Okay. Because... I suppose the danger would be if they don't have any investment in getting better, if they don't believe they can get better, then all of that opening up is just a waste of time.
0: And and uh, this kind of brings us back to the politics of, of the facility and the fact that uh, most of these guys are not ever going to get out. Uh, how do you motivate somebody when there's no hope of them getting out?
1: So even those guys in this latter group that you're talking about, most of them, ninety-nine percent of them, don't have a chance of getting out.
0: Right. Right. They will, they will probably never get out.
1: Are, are were all of their crimes pretty horrible? Even the ones that have some ability to self-reflect.
0: Uh, some of them have. Uh, uh, they, in order to be put into the facility, they have to have at least two victims. Uh, so. Uh, level of severity you know it it, it varies some, some have uh you know uh well all of them have had you know two victims but uh some of them have you know 10 20 30 40 50 victims or more maybe hundreds mm-hmm.
1: now would you have like for instance i got this this email from a very contrite father who had molested his two daughters and he had done his time, and he got out, and he was, um, and there was alcohol involved when when he had, had done these things, and not that that excuses it, but um, I think for somebody like that, it probably made it easier for him to cross that line. He emailed me. He's in support groups for both of these things. He has apologized to his daughter. He knows that he has, in many ways, ruined his life. He gets released. Why, why? Are there guys like that that are going to be in Koalinga? Or is he somebody that shouldn't be in Koalinga? Or is he right on the border of should maybe be in, should maybe be out? How do you decide? He's got two victims. There's There's daughters.
0: In in the public's eye, uh they don't they don't see distinctions. So if somebody is a child molester, they're a child molester. Uh specific, specifics of the case uh uh in the eyes of the general public are are not so important. So so this uh gentleman who who molested his two daughters, he might be genuinely remorseful. Uh, contrite, uh, want to uh, go to therapy and and, and try to uh, uh, you know understand his behavior, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, if he's caught up in the system, you know he'll he'll uh, he could end up in Colinga.
1: When you say caught up in the system, meaning he doesn't get a judge that feels that his contrition is. Valid? is that really the all that keeps him from going to Kalinga, Kalinga for the rest of his life? It just seems like there's so many cases that I I read about or I hear people share with me where a father or a stepfather or, or even a mother um, molested more than one person, but that person's not in jail. So why are some of these other people that just have a couple of victims, why are they in Koalinga with no chance of getting out? Just happenstance? The judge?
0: Yeah, you could get a bad judge and, you know, end up in Koalinga.
1: Or some people would say a good judge. Right. Bad judge to you, to the the, the, the prisoner or the, you know, whoever. That's fascinating to me that that there's how differently someone's life could be just based on based on that. What do you attribute that to? Or is it our just our wide variety of opinion about somebody's chance of doing it again or how much punishment we think they deserve?
0: I I think that there's a there's a lot there's a genuine there's a lack of knowledge uh uh among the general public uh because uh this gentleman who, who emailed you uh probably there's a good chance that that he could correct his you know his uh his behaviors and his actions um but but a lot of people are not willing to to recognize that
1: Would it be fair to say that somebody, let's say you're a a child molester and you do your time and you get out. What are the chances that that person is going to stay free from committing those crimes again without some type of active support system, support groups, intense therapy?
0: without a support system they most likely will end up back in prison and and uh back in the hospital
1: and abusing again
0: right awareness is really the key and and for a lot of reasons these guys have a compromised level of awareness they have uh, a lot of denial going on um a lot of neurological stuff going on like i mentioned you know that that kind of um Compromises somebody's ability to to uh make healthy decisions
1: and that does that have to do both with empathy and with impulse control? are both of those a result of uh, a physical compromising of the brain
0: uh empathy and impulse control um, i I think empathy is uh maybe more of an emotional connection mm-hmm uh whereas uh, impulsivity is, is uh, more of a chemical uh thing mm-hmm. so i think uh maybe what I'm trying to say is that, is that uh empathy can be worked on it it's easier i think to to maybe work on empathy impulsivity is is uh is probably harder to to put in check uh, some of these guys you know they have a they have a day room so uh, you know when and I'm not I'm not saying this to be sensationalistic or anything but they wait for toddlers and tiaras to come on wow and and that's where in the day room that's when they go to the day room is to watch
1: i just say that cuz it's a shitty show
0: but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, uh, i don't watch that, it myself that is
1: <laughs> are, and do they allow people to watch that
0: uh it it's a it's a hospital it's not a prison <gasps> yeah so um you know they can they can um uh, they can watch Anything on daytime TV, so
1: and do are there guys that like try to jerk off while they're watching it?
0: Uh, uh yeah, I mean, there have been. You know, we uh, staff is, doesn't allow that. You know, they will they will be you know uh, they will be uh, yelled at mm-hmm. for that. But
1: that's got to be really disturbing to watch. Now I'm trying not to judge those guys that are that are sick. Because um, I know they've got such an emptiness inside them, and the, and at least the ones that have some ability for empathy, um, the psychopaths I don't I don't really feel much empathy for. But those guys that um that's so sad. It's so sad the thought that that's what your life comes down to that you're in a state hospital waiting for toddlers and tiaras to come on so you can get the biggest erection of your day
0: how pathetic is that that's that's a very that's a very lonely place to be that's gotta be I, I mean people looking on from the outside the public goes that's some sick shit you know but there's nothing there that, that's, a, that's a complete, that's a, you know, that's a kind of a completely bankrupt person.
1: How much of a choice does that person have in finding themselves sitting, and I suppose this is more of an ethical, metaphysical question than a scientific one, but how much of a choice did that person have in all the events that led to them sitting waiting for toddlers and to kick tiaras to come on in a lockdown hospital
0: i think i think a lot of it or most of it or maybe all of it was was taken from them at a pretty young age you know they never had the opportunity to to learn how to keep their impulses in check to uh figure out uh, to learn about compassion that that's you know these are things that we take for granted kind of uh, but but a lot of these guys they've they've never had access to those things they have never had the sources the the figures in their life you know to 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 teach them the these very important things about being a human being and again you know, the general public looks at them and goes, "You know, this is this person is just shit." You yeah. um, know, why should we feel any level of compassion for them? You know, why should we even keep them alive? Why don't we just drop them all into a hole and bury them? Um, you know, that's that's how a lot of people think. And, and and if somebody says, "Hey, wait a minute," let's let's try and figure out what happened let's try and understand try to understand how this person got to the place where they are um if you're if you're that person people start to go wait a minute you know you're you're sympathizing you're you know you're um you know you're you're being a liberal you're being too liberal or you're being too nice to them or you know you're excusing their behavior not true you know, me as a psychologist, like I said about being curious, I really want to find out how this person got to the place where they are. It doesn't mean that I'm excusing their crime. It's not that I'm, you know, uh, saying what they did is okay. That's just ridiculous. But
1: because you're not talking about, I want to let I want to let them loose because they're sad and they're. Uh, you know, I think it shows that you have an empathy for the rest of society that you want to try to minimize this from happening in the future to other people. So you can identify the family dynamic that turned that person into somebody who is either unable to control their actions or feels so empty inside that they don't want to try to control their actions.
0: That's the thing is is really trying to understand why they they've done what they've done. So that we can know, you know, what the signs are, what are the factors that went into them becoming victimizers, and prevent other people from from going down the same road. Uh, I think that's why, that's one of the factors in in, um, kind of, we're seeing a lot more kind of sex-related crimes, molestation and rape. You know, in in our in our society, because we go straight to the to the judgment without making any attempt to understand the hows and whys of their behavior. When you go straight to judgment, then there's no room for um, for understanding. It's all kind of on on an emotional level. Uh, But if we're going to stop or reduce. Uh, uh molestation, rape, then we we have to go to the source. We have to go to the guys who who have done it who who are doing it
1: w- was there anything you want to touch on before we get to the questions
0: from um, people from twitter uh th- there's probably a, a lot of things but uh, we can go to go to Twitter okay um, was
1: it hard to keep his job separate from his home life or were job-related issues constantly on his mind?
0: Uh, good question. Uh, so this is where again uh, meditation and and having a, the spiritual practice of Buddhism really helped me because when I would leave, you know the the front gates, you know all this stuff would be going through my mind, and I couldn't just let it eat at me. You know things I'd seen, stories I'd heard, you know behaviors I'd witnessed. Um, so I, I learned really quickly that, um, usually as soon as I got home, you know, I'd rest for a little while. Then I'd process this stuff through the process of meditation so that there was nothing or as little as possible remaining that was bothering me. Uh, and I actually recommend this to, to, um, to a lot of my clients, that if you have something happen to you during the day, something that, that made you really angry, uh, really disturbed you, don't just let it sit there. Take care of it. Make an effort somehow, through meditation or whatever else you do, to resolve it somehow. So uh, a story that I have is, is a week or two ago, I was driving down the freeway on a Sunday morning. It was 7 a.m., and, uh, there was a, uh, an idiot tailgating me. 7 a.m. in the morning, and there's all these lanes open, but he's gotta, mm-hmm. you know, be six inches from my, from my bumper. So, um, you know, he, he got off the freeway or whatever. So I was really angry. And this background irritation stayed with me all day long. Whatever I did, I just wasn't there. You know, I wasn't completely there. So, uh, that night, I was laying in bed, and then I, I said, "Hey, wait a minute this thing 's still bothering me so um, you know, I got my meditation cushion and and I did you know ten fifteen minutes of meditation specifically on this feeling of anger and irritation and I worked through it and it it really helped me
1: how how specifically did you meditate on this thing of was there a thing that you said to yourself? did you have a mantra? did you focus on?" something did you say something to yourself where what, what did you do
0: well uh you know first thing you got to do is find a quiet place with uh, dim lighting and you use the the mindfulness formula which is you know acceptance of what's going on and um staying present in the moment and being non so
1: while feeling that Rage at that person?
0: Yes, yes. So that's what I did. You know, I, I identified the feeling, which was anger and irritation. I didn't judge it. I, I just observed it. You know, and I and I tried to really uh, see uh, how intense it was. You know, uh, see if there was any movement in it. You know, whether it 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 uh, fluctuated in its intensity. And uh, when I started doing that, then uh, kind of insight, uh, kind of insight, mm, took over, and I started to not intellectually, but I started to uh, understand what this this uh, feeling of irritation and anger was about, uh, not on an intellectual level, but but on a body level, yeah, and um, that. You know, when, once I got to that point, then it was pretty much it was pretty much resolved, and you know, I was able to um, sleep well.
1: Is it fair to say that that you could then identify this was something that was happening in your body as opposed to this was defining who you were in that moment because it was this like cloud that had enveloped your emotions and became your primary emotion? Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yes, um, and, and that's and that's very common, you know, with anger. Enrage rage is, is that we personalize it and it becomes us you know it's like it's like this anger belongs to me you know it's mine don't mess with it um
1: this person has painted me completely from head to toe with this thing that i'm stuck with right and it's never going to go away
0: right right you are the one experiencing it but uh when we don't personalize it then Then we can have some room for objectivity and for some understanding and some some insight, some wisdom. Mm-hmm. that makes
1: that makes perfect sense. I know sometimes if I find myself wanting to look at pornography, um, I will just say, "Oh, that's let's observe that part of me, you know." Where where am I feeling that in my body? Is it in my chest that I, I'm feeling an emptiness and I want I want to escape that emptiness in my chest? Because most of the times, it has nothing to do with feeling horny. It has to do with feeling a piece of my soul or my chest missing. And I want something that's going to take me out of that feeling. And um, many times I'm able to just almost like view myself from from above and just see it you know just like a tree blowing in the wind I'm not a bad person I'm just somebody who's experiencing something that I want to escape from and if I observe it it does dissipate but when that feeling comes up and that emptiness comes up especially in the middle of processing something that's that's really really difficult and painful I think that feeling is going to be there forever mm. and why not go to something that's going to take me out of that. And I hope somebody listening to this podcast can take that if you take anything from this it's that everything changes. No emotion is permanent or has to be permanent if you find a way to process it or view it. Is that is that fair to say?
0: Yes. And and this I think this is a very important point. At least in Buddhism, impermanence is the big deal. That's that's the foundation of the Buddhist psychology, which is that that every single thing is impermanent. Everything is moving, flowing. Um, but but our minds, our ego, uh, wants to to fool us, trick us, play us into believing that that things are permanent, that things are never going to change. When I work with couples, uh, they come in to see me and, and I kind of ask them, the first question is, you know, do you, do you know what the first, the two main reasons for divorce are? And uh, they will say, well, um, financial reasons and, and infidelity. I'll say yeah you mean statistically you're right those are the two biggest reasons for divorce statistically but actually in my view the biggest reason for divorce and relationship difficulties is not paying attention not paying attention to each partner not paying attention to what's going on in their own mind and, and their feelings regarding their partner and uh, being in a continual state of, of lack of awareness uh, that 's what leads to infidelity that 's what leads to uh, uh, financial problems that 's what leads to uh, lack of communication that that 's what leads to you know uh, domestic violence that leads to all the negative things in relationships
1: interesting too, and I heartily agree and the foundation of improvisation. If you study improvisation, the first thing they teach you is listen, listen to that person and don't try to force your idea of the direction it should go, but be fluid with it and take what is given and then react to it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the most important thing. And I think that applies to life as well, which isn't to say be completely passive, but really, really listen to, to what that person is and try to be flexible. Um, how does he feel about most of his patients as people? Anything positive? Do you ever feel positive things? Um, when uh, I think we're talking about the dealing with the rapists and the child molesters. Uh,
0: actually, because I, I think it's kind of the approach that I took to, to looking at these individuals uh, as human beings. I got to know some of them very well, and they were very willing to talk to me. They wouldn't shut down when you know I approached them or in group therapy. So, uh, so I got to know them on a kind of a, a personal level, you know. Um, so, I learned a lot from from these guys, and, and even the antisocial guys, who um, who had this chronic mask up I cannot discriminate I could not discriminate between the guys who would talk to me and the guys who wouldn't talk to me um, because that's kind of dualistic thinking and uh, dualistic thinking is very much discouraged in the, in the Buddhist philosophy and the psychology I heard somebody say that there's no such thing as trash And what he meant was that every experience in life has some meaning in it. There's nothing that's meaningless that happens Mm -hmm. in life. Uh, So it's up to us to find that meaning. The temptation is to discard, try to discard experiences, to try and chop them off and get rid of them. You know, if it's abuse or trauma or whatever... That's human instinct is, to, is to or even to,
1: our own fuck ups,
0: yeah, our own fuck ups, um, but uh when we do that, then uh we lose the the potential value in our experiences, even if it was a negative experience,
1: yeah i you know I strongly believe that you know pain and loss and all that stuff is it's it's a forced gym membership for the soul, and it may suck at the time because we're worn out and we're tired and we're on the verge of tears and we feel like we can't go on but after we've showered and had a little bit of rest we're stronger for it and we have more insight and we're able to take on the world in a a way that is more prepared
0: yes and and what I was uh, helping a person with uh, a while ago was uh, this person said something like you know what she made me doubt myself. I, I said to him, well, wait a minute. Let's take a look at that. Can somebody actually have the power to control your emotions? Like if I say something to you that, that's offensive, can I actually reach out into your brain and make you angry? I, I can't do that. No. Ultimately, it's a choice. Uh, authentic insight and wisdom at least in the, in the Buddhist point of view, comes from dropping things off. We've got too many things up here already.
1: Or you think, I need this, and I need to achieve this, and I need to be this person, and this has to happen by such and such day. Yes. Letting go of that.
0: Yes, and, and that's what I mean by, by appreciating experiences. Appreciate what we've done up to this point. And just be okay with where we've been and what we've done. Instead of compulsively... Wanting to have more.
1: And is there a book that you can recommend for people that want more mindfulness in their daily lives?
0: Uh, There's a lot of books on mindfulness. Um, There's actually a a Vietnamese uh, Zen uh, Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh, who's written a lot of books on anger and mindfulness. And, How do you, and, you spell his name? Uh, first name is T H I C H. Middle name is N H A T, and last name is spelled H A N H. Tick not Han. Um, uh, he's got he's got dozens of books out, but particularly about anger and relationships. I, I think the book is actually called Anger, just okay. just anger. But but people can go on Amazon and, and check yeah. it out.
1: Uh, probably the most fascinating book that I've ever read about. Um, I guess they would be considered psychopaths. Um, it was mostly about serial killers and profiling them. Uh, it was written by a guy named John Douglas who was is considered the, the, the grandfather of serial killer profiling. And he wrote a book um, a while back called My, Mind Hunter. And it is, I don't know if uh, everybody has the stomach for it, but if you have a strong stomach, and you're fascinated by what makes people tick and how they express their sickness and how to profile them, it is probably the most compelling book that I've ever read. It's, um, it, after I put it down, the first thing I did was put an alarm system in, <laughs> our, in our house. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it is fascinating.
0: Hmm.
1: What is the biggest, let's have the, this be the, the, the last question. What is the biggest myth about pedophiles and rapists, the biggest thing that kind of surprised you in dealing with them that you didn't know going in and that the average person might not know?
0: The biggest myth, uh, that they're completely evil. It's impossible for somebody who's never met a child molester or a rapist uh to 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 see this um but if you actually talk to them if you actually kind of get to know them then you will see that that they might have done extremely terrible things uh they might have a a large part of them that is that is bad um but uh there's still you can occasionally get a small slice of humanity. Uh, so uh, there's there's nobody, I think, there's no human who is completely evil. And and there's no human who's completely good. Thing things are just not that black and white.
1: Well, I hope you guys found that as uh, as interesting as as I did. Um, not his part my part I find myself to be very interesting um, I actually really want to put up the podcast where I cut out everything everybody says except my stuff but um, people have told me that that might not be a good idea so I listen to him now I, uh, I I love that like um, I have to say no like somebody's gonna think I wasn't kidding um, I got a lot out of that episode so many thanks to uh, to David for, for coming in and doing that um, before we take it out with a stack o surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show. Um, it is, uh, the website is mentalpod.com, and you can go there and make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a monthly recurring donation. God bless those of you that do that and, uh, and who uh, transcribe the episodes. It, it means the world to me. It really does, or at least a very large continent. The joke never gets old. Um, you can also support the show by shopping at Amazon through our search portal. Uh, make sure your ad blocker isn't uh, engaged. And it's uh, it's on the right-hand side of the homepage, about halfway down. Amazon gives us a couple of nickels, and it doesn't cost you anything. You cheap fuck. Wow. I don't know why I had to jump down your throat. And... Um, I think you can also buy uh, coffee mugs and T-shirts at the website. Could I care less about that? Could that have been more of a half assed pitch? It's no wonder I only get advertisers about every third episode. Sweet mother of God! All right, let's get into some fucking surveys. Let's get into somebody else's failures, other than mine. Um, I don't feel like a failure. I actually feel very proud of uh, of what we're we're doing here on the on the show. Um, This is from the struggle in the sentence survey filled out by Jessica about her depression. She writes, it's the feeling of just wanting to magically disintegrate into nothingness in the middle of the night and being disappointed when you wake up still there in the morning. About her anxiety, it's like every muscle in my entire body is always tense and also feeling always on the edge, always on the verge of freaking out. About her anorexia, it was really comforting knowing that everything will be okay if you're hungry enough. Boy, I find the anorexia and the bulimia ones, maybe because I've never experienced that, I find those to be the most um, illuminating, the people that can that can um, describe those. <laughs> maybe because I have experienced everything of every other sickness. About her panic attack, she writes, it feels like your body is rejecting you, moving through space without you, and you might die. This is from same survey filled out by A woman calls herself Tilly Lou. About her depression, she writes, wearing a mask with a mute button and foggy lenses, all while being paralyzed from the brain to the toes. About her anxiety, being stuck on a treadmill, going twice as fast as your pace, with no one to stop the belt from removing your skin when you fall. About her OCD, OCD is to me as nursing is to a newborn. About her trichotillomania, she writes, I find a hair... Out of all the thousands on my head, it's wrong, just like me, and needs to be removed, but it is part of me and cannot be discarded. Boy, her her descriptions are so, what's the word, descriptive? Oh, my God, Paul. Paul. Um. About her PTSD, like an infestation of cockroaches. Try as I may to get rid of pervasive thoughts and panic attacks. They just keep resurfacing. And about being a sex crime victim, she writes, too complex to describe in a few words. This is from a uh, same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Wendigo Wando. He uh, About his anxiety, he writes, I know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be bad, and I'll never stop thinking about it. About his codependency, there is no me without her. The person I was before is gone. And about his PTSD, frozen. mind goes blank. I'm a zombie. It's the only way to survive. Um, This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Kenny. Um, He writes, uh, what do you dislike or like about your body? My stomach, because I can't seem to get it to be tight with defined abs my nose because it's crooked and restricts my breathing, my penis because it's circumcised, and I wish it was bigger. Um, I've never heard somebody complain about their penis being circumcised, but leave it up to uh, human beings to find something new to dislike about their genitals. I would like that on my gravestone. Um, And then in parentheses, it it could put Paul's balls were lopsided. Uh, same same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself. Where did the lighter fluid come from? I'd love to know the story behind that. Picking that name, about his depression, an anvil being dropped on every achievement. About his anxiety, the fear that everyone will see me as I see myself. That is deep, and about his alcoholism and drug addiction. Please don't let it be alcoholism. Drinking is great. Oh my God, do I know that feeling? Um. Same, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Anastasia about her bulimia. Bulimia is a two-faced friend who strokes my arched skeletal spine as I bend over the toilet, encouraging me to keep going with, there's only a little bit left now. See how easy this is? You're doing great. And just think how happy you'll feel when you're empty and you finally have something to be proud of. About her anorexia, anorexia is my strength and my weakness, my determination and lack of direction, my pride and my shame, my control and complete lack thereof, my savior and my executioner. It feels like letting go, transcending and smiling as I'm descending into darkness and despair. Well, she should be a writer if she's not. Uh, About her love addiction, love addiction makes me feel... Like unless someone loves me, it doesn't even matter if I love myself. It's all in the eye of the beholder. About her sex addiction, she writes, My sex addiction feels like the only way I can truly let go of my memories of rape and abuse. I close my eyes and leave my body. I do what they tell me to do, but I'm not really there. And afterwards, I tell myself that I wanted it. And I want more, even though most times I didn't even want to be touched. Wow, that is... That is deep. Thank you. Thank you all for um, so succinctly describing your struggles. Um, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself, uh, what does he call himself? Ugh, calls himself. And um, what would you like people to say at your funeral? Despite what he overcame, he was so normal. How does writing that make you feel? Bizarre that that was all I could come up with. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would go back to look at eight-year-old me when they told me my mother had died just to see if I took it as stoically as I like to think. I'm supposed to feel great about living in Brooklyn with a fantastic girl and being an attorney like I dreamed of in college, but I don't. I feel like some underachieving failure who has yet to truly begin living. How does writing that make you feel? Awful. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, despite having listened to your podcast for a year. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? It has, but not as much as you would hope. Um, and uh, I sh- probably should have read this, but um, the environment that you were raised in, he writes, uh, totally chaotic, raised by a widower father with crippling depression. Not sure where that fits. Well, whatever the description is of what that is, that sounds like a lot for a kid. And I hope you're talking to somebody about that because how could you not? I mean, that's being abandoned by both parents, you know, not necessarily through their own choice, but it doesn't matter to a kid what the reason is as much as the fact that they're not there to mirror you and hold you and have you feel like you're important. Um, and the suggestion to make the podcast better is I'd like to guest whose career has been the victim of the recession for the past few years. The problem with that is trying to choose from the 60 million people affected. Um, same survey. Um, and this is just an excerpt from it. From this is filled out by Kristen. Uh, about her I shouldn't feel this she writes I'm supposed to miss him and feel pretty sad about not seeing and not really having a relationship with my dad but I don't I feel nothing and you know when I read that Kristen I examined how I feel about my dad not being around and honestly I come pretty close to not feeling anything and I felt guilty when I thought that thought I had one really painful moment when I realized he was gone, because we used to talk about sports, it was about the only thing that he was really interested in talking about. And and I realized I wanted to ask him a question about college basketball, because it was March. And I used to call him sometimes and say, hey, who are the good teams to look out for? And I started to pick up my cell phone, and this was like three months after he died, and I realized that I would never be able to call him again. and And that made me sad, and I cried, but I have honestly, not had a moment since then in the six, seven years since then. And I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but I think it's really up to the parent to build those memories with that kid and that the child shouldn't feel guilty for not feeling something when when that parent passes away. And I, ho- I hope that's not harsh, but I, I don't think people should, should should feel guilt about whatever it is they feel, because um, our feelings are our feelings. This is from the uh, shouldn't feel this way survey uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Floyd, and she writes, "I'm supposed to feel great about my post-divorce fiance, but I really feel better about my job and my life in general. I'm supposed to feel nothing for my ex, but I miss him. I'm supposed to be angry for what he did, but I never was. I just wanted relief." I'm supposed to feel great about my new life, but I often think about the new professional gas stove and real exhaust hood that I had just bought and how I'd planned to cook and have kids and how that promise was broken and how he seemed to relish in crushing my dreams without providing any reason why. I'd say, if we have a girl, I'd love to name her Rose, and he'd just shake his head like, there's no way, not going to happen. I'm supposed to hate him for stranding me repeatedly, but I understand now that that was the only way he had to communicate. I'm supposed to love my new guy, but I can't stand the way he eats, smacking and inhaling food and cutting up all his meat into pieces like he's a child. I'm supposed to love that my new guy is communicative, but once he gets going, I tune him out because he's only talking to hear himself and doesn't let anyone else speak. Is it just me, or does this guy sound like a douche? Um, I'm sorry, that's really judgmental, but he doesn't sound communicative. He sounds like he talks a lot, but he doesn't say anything. Um, and you deserve to know why he promised to to have kids. And A, why is he not, why is he suddenly not want to do that? And why is he not communicating that to you? Um, you know, you know, I and then the, the food smacking is just annoying on top of the rest of it. If he was like this great communicative guy that you know I don't know, it just uh I don't know you, but you deserve better. You deserve anybody deserves better than 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 that. And I don't know if this guy if it can be worked on with him, but I, I would uh I would take a, a Maserati to counseling. Um Whatever the fastest car is that you can... Although I'm sure that guy's going to... If you ask him, you know, would you like to go to counseling, he's going to go, no, it's for pussies. Why am I so angry at that guy? You know what? Maybe I'm angry at that 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 is the state of so many relationships is that we think that that's... Okay, that that's a, a, a great partner that we settle, you know, for things until we realize sometimes that w- we deserve more. You know, sometimes when I realize that I deserve something that I, that I haven't been asking for, it makes me angry, really angry at first, as if somebody else was supposed to figure that out for me. Um, this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, um, uh, gra- the grass is always greener. She's straight in her 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment i uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse and stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. My adopted father was very touchy. He always insisted on hugs and would grab my butt. Um, yeah, that's not good. Uh, then a quick kiss on the lips. He did this to all of my female friends as well. Creepy. Uh, I know they thought it was weird. They often told me that they didn't like the way he touched them. Another situation was when we were traveling together. I think it was for business. We had a hotel room for the night. It had two queen size beds, but he insisted I sleep in his bed and he spooned me all night. He was only wearing his underwear. That is beyond inappropriate. And, um, I'm, I'm, clearly, you didn't know how to say, um, that you don't want that. And, um, I wonder. I wonder if growing up, it, your thoughts or your feelings were not welcomed by your parents, and you were told that you were wrong. What you were saying or thinking or feeling was was criticized. Um, deepest darkest thoughts. I often think about who would care if I died. Would anyone show up at the funeral, and would they all sigh relief uh, with relief that I am finally out of their hair? I sometimes wonder what life would have been like if I didn't have kids. I love my kids more than words can describe, and they're still young, so I hope this is just a manifestation of sleep deprivation and stress. I picture comforting my mom at my adopted dad's funeral. I've been waiting for him to die since 1989 when the doctors gave him one year to live with a severe heart condition. The old bastard just won't let go. Fuck, man. Cut him out of your life. um, Or set boundaries with him and... But I know it's hard, man. When somebody doesn't raise us to speak up for ourselves, it's like we don't know how to find the words and we feel selfish for doing it. So I I feel for you. Deepest, darkest secrets. I cheated on my husband when we were engaged and very shortly after we were married with multiple men. I don't know why I did it, but this is the first time I have told anyone. I'm deeply ashamed and feel very guilty. I know if he ever found out, it would be the end of our marriage and I could never tell him because of the pain it would cause him. You know, something that's kind of popping into my head is thinking you were sexualized as a child by this male figure, and it sounds like sex is maybe the way that you comfort yourself. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being gangbanged, men lined up all hard and wanting me so badly, then being covered in their cum as they exploit with explode with enjoyment of my body would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend uh we sometimes watch gangbang porn together because he knows it's it gets me off but i don't know if he knows i picture myself as the one getting fucked i would think he does i would think he does um how could you not i mean i know some people picture themselves as the other sex when they're watching porn but um Yeah, I wouldn't worry about him uh, judging you about that. And if he does judge you, why is he watching that with you? Uh, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I am ashamed about my body and I'm sad that the scenario would never happen because no one would want to fuck me. I assume my husband does so out of obligation and opportunity. (sighs) And she writes that filling out this survey has been cathartic. I hope that you can get more catharsis and talk with somebody about starting with your adopted father because I would give serious weight to that. I lived 50 years without giving weight to a caregiver sexualizing me, and the puzzle is finally starting to make sense. Uh, this is same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself T.S. Garp. He is in his 30s, um, straight, Uh, Not really sure I have homosexual thoughts, but they may be simply intrusive thoughts. Um, Was raised in a little dysfunctional environment. Mom and dad screamed at each other, drank and did drugs, and trafficked drugs for several years. I'd say that's more than a little dysfunctional. Um, Never been the victim of sexual abuse. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I struggle with intrusive thoughts such as murdering people or running people over with my car. I go to therapy and know these are anxiety-induced thoughts, but it's still an uphill battle. I know these thoughts are not me. Just today I collected a ladybug crawling through the halls of my place of work and took it outside because it was so afraid and it would be stepped. I guess because I was so afraid it would be stepped on. And I would have done nothing about it. Perhaps if I did this for people more often, I would not be in a fight with my own psyche all the time. I don't know. It's possible that you're a a good guy and you also just happen to be in a fight with your your psyche. Um, uh, Most powerful fantasy, having sex with a man has been a recurring fantasy throughout much of my life. Would you ever consider telling a partner? I've told my wife, but she was fearful for some time that I would leave her... um, I've told my wife, she was fearful for some time that I would leave her, but I have not and I've continued to be as great a lover and husband as I can be. So I think we are past any fears. Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? I have always feared being found out and other men would despise me has made me feel as though I am a lesser man as well. You know, I can understand that because I think most guys are... At least most straight guys are afraid that, you know, we may have a gay or bisexual part of us and that it's going to be judged. But, you know, fuck anybody that judges you. No, I mean, literally fuck them. Ugh. I am hating my jokes in this episode. Uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Miles. We've, we've had uh, surveys from her before. She has really good, um, interesting stuff to say. She is in her uh, 20s. She's straight. um, Was raised in a little dysfunctional environment. uh, Was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts. I have two recurring intrusive thoughts that never seem to go away. The first revolves around knives. I think about stabbing myself, accidentally chopping off my fingers or toes, even accidentally stabbing or dropping the knife on my dog. I'm sure Freud would have some interesting things to say about this particular fear. Um, A second intrusive thought revolves around cars. I'm not a particularly good driver, and when I'm in my car, I can't help but think about crashing both intentionally and accidentally. I think of how people would react if I died in the crash. I wonder if it would be a relief or if I would feel shameful for it. I also worry... That if it's an accident, my friends and family will assume it was intentional because of my history of depression. Um, Deepest, darkest secrets. I was raped when I was 19. I was traveling abroad with a group of volunteers and one of the group leaders wouldn't take no for an answer. I was a virgin at the time. I repressed the memory for a long time, about two and a half years. One night I argued with a friend and she physically shoved me, which triggered the memory. I freaked out and started sobbing. At first, I totally blamed myself because I had been drinking and didn't, quote, fight back, though I did repeatedly say no. I've since been able to work through a lot of the issues surrounding the event, but it still affects my ability to be present during sex. At best, my mind tends to wander. At worst, sex becomes a complete out-of-body experience. Um, big hug to you. Um. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Group sex. I fantasize about an orgy of beautiful people, all of them kind, open, and unjealous lovers. Having the loving attention of a group of people is highly appealing to me. I also fantasize about being in sexual and romantic relationships with women, though that's not something I would necessarily want in reality. I also imagine having rough sex with a man who restrains my hands above my head and won't stop until I come. Finally, I fantasize about being with my ideal partner, someone cute, funny, and loving who isn't afraid to laugh during sex and who wants to chat afterward. I try not to think too much about this last one because it hurts so much. I'm afraid that I will never find that person or experience that kind of love. Um, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Sure. I feel like most of my fantasies are pretty tame, and I hope to fulfill many of them during my lifetime. I'm generally pretty open about sex. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, I'm not ashamed of my fantasies, but I am afraid that I will never be able to fulfill them. I've always had rocky relationships with the men in my life, probably as a result of my messed up relationship with my father. I'm afraid I will never find that perfect partner who will love me for everything I am and not just the bits and pieces I show to the world at large. You know, this is just my opinion, but... I think we should give up the idea of the perfect partner. Maybe I'm wrong there, but I think that places such high expectations that when we're confronted with the flaws that are there in every human being, um, we we want to find somebody else. And um, then all of a sudden we're in our head thinking about it. Um, this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. And I just want to read an excerpt. This is filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Jack Seven. He's uh, transgendered, uh, gay, attracted to men and trans people. Um, I'm supposed to feel good uh, about when people care about me, but I don't. I feel pressured to live live up to some expectation. I'm supposed to feel good about being complimented, but I don't. I feel like the person who said it is lying to me. I'm supposed to feel included and loved about friends wanting to throw me a birthday party, but I don't. I feel pressured and like I'm being set up for embarrassment because if it's just a regular party or for someone else, I can slip away if it becomes too much. A party for me makes me feel trapped and like the people attending will be nice out of obligation. You know, it just goes to show it doesn't matter how other people treat us or feel about us if if we don't like ourselves and I know that sounds like such a cliche but it's so it's so true uh this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Danielle she writes when I was a young child between five and ten on sleepovers at my grandmother's house she would put me in a cardigan and take me on a late night walk before bed when I say late I mean like 8 p.m. in the summer we would be catching the sunset I think I've read this one before but I don't care um, we would get to that chat about life and dreams and desires. It was so nice to just be able to express myself openly without judgment. My parents had divorced when I was three, and I never felt like I could truly talk to them about anything because somehow they would find a way to use it against the other parent or would find a way to complain about the other parent. Ah, oh, that is the fucking worst. Um, but with my grandmother, I could just talk and walk, and she would listen, just listen. There was no agenda. There was no fear that my words would end up being twisted and used against me or someone I loved. I could just be me, just be a kid who is curious about the world. And you know, the first thought that occurs to me, other than how beautiful that is and what a sweet person your grandmother was, is one of those divorced parents can be that person. Divorce must just be a motherfucker with people, because God... So many people handle it so badly and use their kids as pawns. This is also from Happy Moments, filled out by uh, Jan, and she writes, This is more of an absurd thought than a happy moment, but I have a sexual fantasy that is just me licking rainbow sprinkles off of a dude. It's absurd and probably the only odd thing I've ever wanted. It makes me happy that I want to do this to someone because it's crazy but also very sincere. I love that. Um, this is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Andrea. And I paired this survey and the survey after hers. Um, specifically, let me see how we are on time. Um, she, Andrea is bisexual in her 20s, um, raised in a little bit of a dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, suicide pretty much every day. I think if I had a way of doing that I know would not fail, I would have by now. I don't live in a country where guns are available, but if I did, I would have one, and it would be only for suicide. Even if I'm not in the depths of despair, I wake up every day with this gray feeling. Boy, do I know that. Uh, Like I can't be bothered. There's no point to anything, and I think I'd rather just be dead. Excuse me. I think about being attacked and how nice the attention would be about breaking up with my boyfriend because I'm bored and fucking around with older guys. I check Craigslist a lot for men in my area, advertising for women, and imagine answering one. Oh, sweet God, be careful. Um, Deepest, darkest secrets. I used to cut and I miss, uh, I've I masturbated while my partner is in the next room asleep next to me and in one case awake and watching a movie with headphones uh, on and his back to me. I have faked almost every orgasm. He thinks I enjoy penetrative sex and have G-spot orgasms, but I don't, I can't, I don't even masturbate like that. He has been my only sexual partner and of course when you're young and you start out you feel like you, you want to be pleasing the guy so you exaggerate and maybe fake a couple of times, but the lies just carried on and on and now I can't be honest about what I enjoy sexually because it would mean admitting I've been deceitful all this time. Um, I let my dog lick my pussy when I was about 11 or 12, maybe four or five times. This shames me the most. It was my first orgasm. It's why I think I'm so fucked up when it comes to sex. I wouldn't let my boyfriend go down on me for years, but he enjoys it, and honestly, it's the only way I can come with him. Every time I get a yeast infection or something down there, I get this rush of memories and guilt, and I feel disgusting. I mean, it wasn't like the dog wasn't fine with it, it's just fucking gross. It's just a fucking gross, creepy way to start out with sex. I didn't start masturbating till maybe four years after. I should mention that only stopped when the dog didn't want to do it anymore. It's really been hard to get past. I could never tell anyone this. Um, well, thank you for sharing that, um, Andrea. Um, you know, when I was first into puberty and had a heart on all the time honestly if I thought my dog could have blown me um, I would have been trying to get my dog to blow me all the time but I always just felt like you know and I read so many of these you know if I read out loud every time somebody submitted one of the dog ones it would probably be just about every week Um, so just know that you're not alone in that and you're not bad Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Most of my sexual fantasies come straight from hardcore rough straight porn where I'm imagining being the guy and looking at the girl from his perspective. I'm worried porn is really fucked with my fantasy life. I can't achieve orgasm now without being completely in my head remembering porn. My organic non-porn fantasies all revolve around being with an older guy who really wants me to the point of being forced almost. I do have a lot of rape fantasies as well. I'm always drawn to Craigslist ads where the guy is asking for submissive girls. I want to be taken advantage of, beaten, choked, used for his pleasure alone. Occasionally I fantasize about fucking a total stranger and it just being a secret. The thought of giving a guy great head turns me on. No anal though, that frightens me. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Uh, I've talked about wanting to be submissive and we're fairly experimental with kink. I've mentioned to him that I look at hookup websites and feel ashamed about it, but I haven't felt okay with asking him to do the whole let's pretend to be strangers meeting up from online and fucking because that sounds a bit ungrateful. I don't think it sounds uh, ungrateful. I, I think it sounds like a healthy way to explore that that desire uh, and way fucking safer than looking for somebody that is looking to be to dominate you on Craigslist. And maybe I'm old-fashioned, but um, that just scares me to hear so many horror stories about that. Also, he has fantasies and needs that I have tried and failed to fulfill, and it makes me feel shitty. I don't feel confident making requests when I can't fulfill my side of the bargain. I wouldn't mention my issues with needing porn, to come because it's hurtful and will only make him feel shitty. I worry all the time that he's thinking about other things and people when we're having sex even though he swears he's not. Ironic, huh? Uh, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Disgusted and ashamed at my dog thing. Uh, Please let that go. Uh, I feel like a self-obsessed narcissist for wanting to be sub all the time, like I'm using sex to polish my ego, like I only want men to confirm how sexy I am and tell me how great they think I am. I feel so, so guilty about faking orgasms with my boyfriend is wonderful, and the thought of being so consistently dishonest makes me feel awful, but I don't know how to change it now. I feel bad for wanting to fuck strange men on the internet, but it's just a fantasy and no one's getting hurt, so it's better than porn in my opinion. I hate myself for needing porn so much. Here I am trying to be a sex-positive feminist, and all my sexual response is tied in with grubby, misogynistic porn. Um, Luckily, my end antidepressants have numbed my libido a lot, and I don't look at porn or masturbate at all anymore. But I've wor- I'm worried I've damaged my ability to fantasize normally with it. I feel like a terrible girlfriend and a lying piece of shit and a sexless, useless lump. I don't think you're hard enough on yourself. God. I want to give you a hug. Uh, Any ways to make the podcast better, she writes a hug from the host. I would totally give you a Give you a hug, and I'd encourage you to, to to talk to somebody about that, maybe get into some type of sexual recovery support group. Um, I don't know, just a thought, because there are people, a lot of people that have the exact same issues and feelings and hurdles. Um, and this is the survey I wanted to follow it up with, um, filled out by a guy who calls himself Human Bean. And um, he's bi, uh, mostly hetero, but definitely have a sexual channel for the right guy if he materializes. He's in his 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Last night I masturbated to a video that had what appeared to be an underage girl in it. I let myself imagine that it was a 10 year old or so. I've never had a fantasy about being with a child before, but just did. Uh, imagined uh, but just did I imagined to try it on it was hot but I would never act on anything like that in real life as I've never sexualized a child in real life um, uh, as an adult Uh, Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was a child myself, I molested a couple of kids I babysat for. One I filleted, and the other a girl I fondled and touched my erect penis to her vulva. No penetration. And I obscured her view from what I was doing. It has bothered me immensely over the years to think how that may have affected them later in life. I am haunted by it and carry a significant amount of shame about it, even though I know I was a child who had been molested and was just acting out. I know with my admission in the previous question that I must come off as some sort of pedophile, but aside from that fantasy last night, I have never had a sexual fantasy about a child. Having had that fantasy last night is what caused me to come answer this survey, as I think it's something I may never tell anyone in real life, even though I'm an exceedingly open person. One more thing. I also used to force a couple of our family dogs to fillet me when I was about 12, about the same time as I was acting out with the kids I babysat for. I know it sounds unlikely, uh, but it's true. I also have guilt around that. I was a messed up kid. What can I say? I Honestly, I can honestly say that the notion of mouth-raping animals has held no interest since that time. Um, and I read that so the two of you, you Andrea and uh, human being, I, I like when I can kind of pair up um, things that people have done or experienced so they can be reminded they're they're not alone. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I enjoy rough sex. Not super rough, just aggressive. I've been on the dominant side and like to have partners who enjoy vigorous sex of all varieties. My fantasies mostly involve oral and anal with me in the dominant position with the woman and submissive with men. Would you ever tell a partner or close friend? Always do, with the exception of the aforementioned fantasy last night, of course. Though who knows, I may well end up sharing it with someone. Depends if the right context ever comes up to uh, these secrets and thoughts, generating particular feelings, nothing bad. The fantasy last night doesn't really disturb me. I know that it is a fantasy and nothing I would want to engage in in real life. The uh, kind of like women who have rape fantasies. Some fantasies are just that. Well, thank you for your honesty. Let's check the time. How are we? Oh my God! I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take one of these out because it's really long um this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uncle stew he is uh male he's um this is from a guy he is male uh he's straight in his 30s was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment um Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if if it counts. I was in the shower as an older teenager when my mom ripped open the shower curtain to show her boyfriend that I had a bigger package than he thought. I don't know why my genitalia was ever a topic of conversation for them, but I'm pretty sure they were intoxicated on some type of illegal drug or substance. The awkwardness of that moment is frozen in my mind, and I really can't look at my stepmom in the face anymore um despite still living with her for 15 years um i assume it it the woman who ripped it open was the stepmom because he's having trouble looking her in the face um because he says my mom ripped open the shower curtain but i can't look my stepmom in the face i'm assuming the he met stepmom ripped open the shower curtain anyway i'll i'll get a detective on that um Deepest, darkest thoughts. My deepest, darkest thought is that somehow I wish I had recorded my stepmom's intimacy with all the men she's brought into her bedroom over the years, and I could watch them whenever I wanted to. I would show my friends and be proud of being associated with someone that was so unbelievably sexy and smooth and feminine. She is the opposite of me in so many regards, and everyone flirts with her, including my friends. She is only in her early 40s, and I wish I could enjoy her with my friends and watch their faces as she had sex. I like the fact that she is so popular with so many people in every way. I privately think of watching her with my friends so they would think more highly of me and possibly associate me with her in some strange way. I would never do anything like that, but I also secretly wish I could have recorded her so I could always enjoy visually what I sometimes heard through the walls with her boyfriends. I can't get the sound of her excitement and screams out of my head. She sounds, I mean, I'm not a therapist or a mental health professional, but those things are sexually abusive, you know. Those boundaries are... She doesn't sound like she has any fucking boundaries. And because she's physically attractive, you know, maybe she thinks that that entitles her to do that. I mean, and I'm curious as to why she's a stepmom, but why he's still living with her if the if your dad isn't there or maybe your dad passed away. Uh, My deepest, darkest secret is I received a handjob from a girl who let her older male friend watch. It was my first time with a girl. We were all in our 20s. I fantasize about that moment, but am confused at why I was slightly turned on by a man enjoying my first intimate experience. I haven't acted on similar urges, but the thought of making out or having sex with a girl in front of men is a secret that I don't know if I'll have the courage to tell a future partner. I wouldn't be ashamed about that. Um... So many things that happened to us when we were early determine our fantasies later in life. Um, Sexual fantasy is the most powerful powerful I fantasize about men watching me have sex with any future female partner from only a few feet away. Um, I could never tell my friends because I would explode with embarrassment and shame. Um, These thoughts bring me great shame as I don't want to admit that being watched by other men might turn me on. Well, I hope you can... Hoping you can get to a point where you can accept that and I really hope you get to talk to somebody, a professional, about that stepmom stuff, because she sexualized you, man. She totally sexualized you. Um, let's get to some happy moments. This is from Eric, and he writes, um Going to weekly soccer matches with my dad, watching our local team, and him showing genuine interest in me, and describing our time together as something he was looking forward to each game. This being at the age of 24, having had a strained and distant relationship with him up to that point. I later found out he was going to therapy, and talked a lot about me and how great I was to his therapist, getting to know him, not just as a dad. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then um, this is from also happy. I'm, I'm going out with a, a trifecta of happy moments. This was filled out by Travis. And he writes, um, his happy moment I made my therapist cry at yesterday's session. She said, I am so happy you are progressing in using mindfulness on a daily basis. Uh, as some. As someone who dislikes praise, I was shocked to find myself swelling with pride. I cried too, and I walked out of the office euphoric. You know, I know therapists try not to um, cry, so she must have really been moved. Um, That's beautiful. Uh, And this is from Jessica. Uh, When I was really little, between the ages of two and eight, my grandparents took care of me during the days while my parents were at work. I spent a lot of time playing on my own while my grandparents uh, checking in every now and again. One of my favorite things to do was to sit and lay under the dining room table. I'd spend hours under the table humming songs, making up stories, and watch as my grandparents walked around pretending they didn't know where I was. Every half hour or so, my grandmother would poke her head under the tablecloth and ask what I was up to, and I'd tell her I was flying in space or in Mr. McGagger's garden meeting Peter Rabbit. It was safe and fun, and I never felt weird doing it. I never felt alone. And then when I did come out, I'd snuggle up to my grandmother on the couch, and she would run her fingertips over the small of my back. It's the most love I've ever felt. It felt warm and safe, and I felt cared for. That's beautiful. Thank you for that, Jessica. And thank you thank you guys for supporting this show and letting me know that I'm not alone and I, I, I hope if you're out there and you're struggling I hope you know that you're not alone and thank you for listening
0: everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful everybody fucked up up in I know is bizarrely way. beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully <laughs> fucked up in some weird way